Hi everyone, welcome back to Hugging My Chaos. And today we have our first expert. Her name is Jillian Lee Wiggins. She's a co-principal investigator of a transla translational emotion neuroscience and development on teenagers and young children, where she focuses on children and adolescents, more specifically on regulating, and I quote, one's emotions, perceiving others' emotions, interacting with others, and focuses on those who have psychological disorders like anxiety, depression, irritability, and or autism. So please Welcome. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me, April. Thank you for being here. Honestly, it's a pleasure having you here. Could you talk a little bit about the research? Because that was pretty interesting. I want to know more about it. Yeah, of course. And so um, what we do in our lab is we, we know that a lot of kids come to the clinic and they're having some problems, like maybe they're having a lot of tantrums or they're really sad or they're really anxious. Um, and clinicians, you know, despite their best intentions, are really limited in what they can do. What they'll do is they'll say, okay, try this treatment. And if that doesn't work, try that, try this, try that, try this, try that. And they have to try stuff until a treatment sticks. That's terrible for families. That's terrible for kids who get ground down a little bit more every time something doesn't work. And that's terrible for our healthcare system because it's very expensive. So what we're working toward is a future where instead of clinicians saying, try this, try this, try this, try this, until something works, uh, they could say, okay, well, here is a lab test that maybe is based on an MRI. And based on this lab test, we think that this is the treatment that's individualized and personalized for you. And this is most likely to work for you. So they can just jump to what will work the best for them. Um, and So what we do in our lab is we, we are looking to uncover the neural mechanisms of, um, of different symptom dimensions like irritability, like de uh, depression, like anxiety. Um, and we also look at uh, what are the neural predictors, what are the neural mechanisms of treatments, how do they work, how can we build new treatments that are based around brain-based hypotheses. Mm, wow, that's really interesting. And I feel like that's more helpful because it focuses on just one specific part, like you mentioned. I want to move our yeah. conversation and talk about depression. I would like to know, yeah. first of all, what is depression? And I would like to know if traumas from the past affect how you're feeling today or if there's any correlation. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things about depression is that like at any single point, 20% of adults are depressed, which is an incredible number. That means like one in five people that you meet are actually having a depressive episode or, or, and so, you know, because Because of the high prevalence, like a lot of people might be familiar with the symptoms. So like having sad mood can be part of it. Um, you know, uh, feeling like you're eating too much, you're eating too little, just not enjoying the things that you used to enjoy can be part of depression. Um, there's actually nine symptoms that you can look up if you Google like DSM depression. Um, but it's a, it's like, there's a huge range of like things that can just reflect 
your body saying, hey, you know, um, we need to take a time out. Something's wrong. What are the, like, the five main symptoms of depression? Okay, so there's uh, different types of depressive disorders, but probably the most prominent one is called major depressive disorder, MDD. Mm -hmm. Um And the symptoms, you have to have five out of these nine symptoms. And it's depressed mood, so like feeling sad, helpless, or hopeless, empty, mm. um, loss of interest or pleasure. So things that you used to like to do, you just are not interested in them anymore. You don't find pleasure in it anymore. Uh, weight loss or gain. So you're not trying to diet. You're not trying to like change your body, but you just uh, are... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the way you're losing weight or you're somehow gaining weight, insomnia or hypersomnia. That means that like you can't get to sleep anymore, or maybe you're sleeping all day. Mm -hmm. Um, psychomotor agitation or retardation. That means that, you know, you, the way that you're talking is just really agitated and your, your speech feels different or, Conversely, you know, you're so depressed that your speaking slows down. Uh, fatigue mm-hmm. or loss of energy almost every day. Uh, feeling worthless or experiencing um, lots of guilt or inappropriate guilt. Things for, guilt for things that like don't even mm-hmm. shouldn't make you feel uh, Decreased concentration. So. Um, having trouble like concentrating on your schoolwork, um, feeling like you just can't focus. And then finally, thoughts of death or suicide mm. can be a part of this. So uh, if you have five of these symptoms, um, then you, you would be depressed. And what creates depression? Like what makes someone be depressed? Huge question. That is a huge question. So, um, Uh, you know, I should say that one of the things about the, the current like diagnostic system we have right now is that the symptoms that I just said to you, they're so broad, right? They range such a, oh, they, they go over such a huge range of behaviors and two people, since you only have to have five of these nine criteria, um, Two people could look completely different in their depression and only have one thing in common, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. So one of the things about my research is that instead of asking questions like what causes depression as a disorder, mm-hmm. it is we're trying to break it down into the component pieces. Like what causes this loss of interest or pleasure? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it something about the way they process rewards? Is it the way this, uh, the way something about the way they process loss? What is it about decreased concentration? Mm-hmm. Is it something in the prefrontal cortex? Is it something about the way that they uh, delegate attention? So instead of saying like what mm-hmm. what causes depression, because the answer is many things, we're trying to break it down into these component pieces, and that way maybe we can get more personalized treatment, mm-hmm. right? Because For somebody who's, uh, you know, who's experiencing the symptom of decreased concentration should not be the same as somebody who's experiencing loss of pleasure, yeah. right? They're two different things, even though they're both called depression. Mm. Um, and so, you know, 
understanding the the multidimensional causes can help. And you mentioned trauma before. Trauma can definitely be a risk factor. Genetics certainly come into play. Uh, the way that you were raised in your family certainly comes into play. Um, you know, there's there depression is what we call multi-determined. So there's not any one thing that can cause depression. It's multiple things coming together in your life. So if people want to know if they're depressed, but they don't have like the, like all of the symptoms, but they have kind of some symptoms, should they, should they, what should they do? So there are depression screenings that you can take online. Um, and, you know, reaching out to whatever healthcare providers that you have access to. And that's, that's another thing about, um, mm -hmm. Healthcare in the U.S. is that many people don't have access to the providers, but um, you know, if you think that you might be depressed, reaching out to your school's counseling and psychological services, or you know, reaching out to your primary care provider, or anybody that you think could connect you to a medical or psychological professional who can help get this treated, because while while depression is, you know, really, really common, a lot of people don't get um, diagnosed, treatment, and they're just suffering. Yeah, so it's important to, like, also be aware of that, all right? Because I feel like, mm, two, like, three years ago, I felt really bad. Like, before COVID, I felt really bad. And there was no reason to feel bad. Like, everything was fine. My family was good. Like, everything was perfect. But I felt empty, you know, like I will have this, my breath will change and I would, just, I would just feel empty. And like, I didn't know why. I didn't know like what was the reason I felt that way. And because mm -hmm. of quarantine, because I was able to be alone, I don't know, something happened and I felt way better. Like mm -hmm. when I came back, I felt way better. But I don't know like what I did to change that feeling because the feeling was so bad. It was, it felt so heavy. Like mm -hmm. it was a bad feeling to have. That's and I think that that is that is actually pretty unusual that you being alone helped your symptoms because for most people it's the opposite like feeling isolated feeling like you don't have like family or friends mm -hmm. around you usually makes depression worse mm -hmm. but yeah I'm, I'm glad that you were able to get out of it I think that most people need um, counseling or psychotropic medication to help them get out of this depressive episode wow. and sometimes both yeah. um i i want to focus on uh i mentioned trauma how can someone heal from trauma or can someone heal from trauma or is that something that's going to be part of your life well you're never going to forget your trauma and um trauma is incredibly common um You know, some estimates are, for example, I'm just pulling out one example mm -hmm. of a trauma. Some estimates are that 75% of girls have been sexually assaulted or experienced child sexual abuse mm -hmm. by the time they're a teenager. Damn. That's a lot. And so it is a lot. And just anecdotally talking to people, some people are saying to me, like, oh, I'm just surprised that it isn't 100% of girls, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, the trauma is always going to be a part of you, but I think that, um, what therapy can do 
And we do have uh, at least a couple um, evidence-based therapies like trauma-focused CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or uh, EMDR, which is an eye movement uh, desensitization uh, protocol, Mm -hmm. where you can address the trauma and make it not that, because a lot of times when people have trauma, it's like this white, hot center. It's so aversive. It's so, um, it's so terrible. It's so scary. It feels like it might destroy you. These memories, they, and that like you can't even touch it. And it, it ends up like radiating out this heat mm-hmm. to like all the rest of your life where like it affects how you interact with people. It yeah. might even affect your sleep have nightmares you know um it it might affect your school it affects your mood so because of this like white hot core of trauma and you might try to push it away you might try to forget about it you know you might try to not think about it but it's still there and it's so scary and aversive that you can't touch it and it still is like radiating out its heat to every aspect of your life But what these traumas, trauma therapies do is it doesn't make you forget about the trauma because that's never going to happen. But it makes it so that it's not white hot anymore. It's okay to touch it. It's okay to think about it. It's okay to understand that that happened and it will always be a part of you, but it doesn't have to be you. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, because I like that you're actually giving like specific like ways to treat it. You cannot do it alone. You have to do it with people who like know of that. So I feel like that's really, I don't know, it's really important to be aware of. Um, I would like to, I ha- I've always had this question. I've always had this question. Uh, let's say two siblings. Two siblings grow up in a household where there's alcohol, there's uh, drug abuse, uh, people hit each other. And the two brothers, the same age, and I've seen this in my family so much, one of them creates a different perspective. One of them has now has a, like a stable family, is happy, has peace, has found peace, and the other one is following the patterns. What caused them to be so different coming from the same place? Yeah, that's a huge, huge question in developmental psychology. And the question is, what makes some people resilient, mm-hmm. right? How is that two people could experience the same tragedy? One person comes yeah. out of it, one person doesn't. Um, there are some things that we know can promote resilience. Um, so, for example, like having um, something that motivates you, like a faith or um, having a a special talent, maybe you're really good at music or you're really good at sports, um, having uh, better intelligence, doing well in school can help. But the number one biggest thing that helps people be resilient is having just one non-parental adult who cares about you. Mm. Yeah. Number one biggest thing is um, if there is somebody that you can go to, like a teacher or uh, a relative or a grandparent or, you know, a family friend who cares about you and loves you and that you trust, Mm. 
to, you know, talk to, that is the number one thing that will help people come out of a bad situation. So what I often tell people in my class is when we talk about resilience, because, you know, there's multiple resilience factors and, um, and I named some of them, uh, having like a, uh, an optimistic personality can help all of those things help. But, um, you know, did you have somebody, if you came from a tough situation, did you have somebody who cared about you? Who wasn't your mom or dad? Did that help you get out of it? And conversely, can you be that person? Can you be that non-parental resilience resource for anybody that you know in your life? Mm. Have a little niece or nephew, a neighbor, or, you know, through the big brother, big sister program, or through, you know, uh, a youth group that you run. Can you be that person who shows that kid who's having a really tough time that you care? And that could be the number one thing that pulls them out of a tough, tough situation. Does it, does it have to be in physical, like physical presence? Or could it be like a group, I don't know, online group or something that... I mean, so, so far the research that has been done has been primarily for physical mm-hmm. presence. But in this world where so much is being done online, mm-hmm. like right now we're talking about, you know, the, something is better than nothing. Yeah. You know that somebody's out there who cares about you is better than nothing. Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's tough. Like it's, it can be really hard because like not all of us have the privilege to have at least one person, you know? So, like, that that's, I don't know, just gives yeah. me that feeling. And there are other ways to get out. There are other ways to get out of uh, tough situations. Like I said, there are other resilience mm-hmm. factors. But the most prominent one is having that one person yeah. who's there for you. Wow. That's that's really powerful. I just, uh, I'm going to quickly ask you another, like, two more questions. Uh, I've seen, I also seen how, like, parents i feel like that kind of goes with resilience but i also seen how some par- some kids who had strict parents and who were demanding of them right now are like in a way successful more successful and i've seen other parents that are more who are more humble more um nice to their kids are now like taking advantage of their parents is that is that usually happens is there a way a parent should um take care of their children how does that affect? So that's a huge question. I don't know if we have like enough time in a few minutes to talk about it. So um, there, in, in developmental psychology, they um, they have a, a scale of like how how do parents parent? Are they more child focused? Are they less child focused? Are they more rule focused? Are they less rule focused? And you're talking about like um authorita- authoritarian parents These are parents who are super strict my way or the highway my rules that's it mm. okay um and then there's also permissive parents who are like well whatever you want like do whatever you know um traditionally you know the research showed that those were suboptimal parenting mm-hmm. both of those were suboptimal Parenting. And what would be optimal is what they call authoritative mm-hmm. parenting. 
So that's where, yes, you have boundaries. Yes, you have rules, but you're also paying attention to what your child thinks and feels. And, you know, the rules are not just set in stone, rigid always, but they can be negotiated based on what your child needs in that moment. So that is traditionally what is thought of as the best type of parenting, authoritative parenting. That being said, you know, you were saying, well, why is it that authoritarian parents, sometimes the kids have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. As a caveat to authoritative parenting being the best, people found that when kids are raised in, um, in scary or unsafe environments, so maybe, maybe there's a lot of gang violence in the neighborhood. Maybe you're in a war zone. Maybe this is, you know, a really poverty-stricken area. When you have authoritarian parents, parents who are very strict on rules, they will keep you safe. And that's why, you know, culturally, a lot of families who come from, you know, uh, maybe backgrounds where there were there was violence or there was poverty or there was, you know, a really, really tough environment. They tend to have more authoritarian parenting styles mm -hmm. because it keeps your children alive. Yeah. It keeps your children safe, but it comes at a psychological cost. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So a lot of kids who have authoritarian, authoritarian parents, yes, they learn to obey the rules Yes, they learn to, you know, be safe, but they might have anxiety. Hmm. They might have depression. I mean, they might have self-doubt, you know. So it kept them safe, but it came at a cost, a psychological cost. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, because parents are trying to do the best to protect them, but they don't know how much they're affecting them. Yeah, and you can really do that in, like, safe environments, you know. And that's why, you know, Balmerand felt that, that mm -hmm. the researcher who came up with this felt that um, authoritative parents were the best because, oh, you have boundaries, mm -hmm. but, you know, you can, um, you can uh, pay attention to kids' needs too. Mm -hmm. But that may not apply if you're if going outside means that you might get shot, yeah. you know? Oh, shoot. I don't know what that is, but... <laughs> that's my but uh maybe that's a bell to say thank you for honestly i would <laughs> like to talk to you more it was honestly a pleasure thank you just oh, I, it was kind you. of broad but i wanted to touch a lot of topics because you like you know so much and you know how to explain it so i was like oh my god i need to cover all of this so thank you for your time <laughs> honestly it means a lot to me oh my pleasure and with that being said i hope you enjoyed this interview and remember to hug that chaos Hug that crazy chaos of yours. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.